Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk, Evening with the Expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available for sale on the Spiral Foundation's website, www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs <coughs> by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. <coughs> I'm so sorry. <coughs> I got a uh, <coughs> frog all of a sudden. Okay, let me make sure my call is going. There we go. <clears throat> Pardon me, everyone. Let's see. All right, hopefully that will work out okay. Okay, sorry, this talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. Uh, tonight's topic uh, in our evidence-based practice of sensory integration series is examination of the evidence for application <clears throat> of sensory integration to diverse populations. Uh, okay, nobody can hear anything. Let me see. Oh, Nancy, I can see what your problem is. All right, you should be able to hear me now, okay, Nancy? I can hear you on the phone. Oh, you can hear me I, on the phone. I just called, I just called on the phone because I can't get it on the computer. Okay. That's very odd. Okay, so I'm going to mute you there. There you go. Um, all right. Make sure you have um, your sound up on your computer and speakers attached. We typically don't have too much trouble with people accessing things. If you have a problem, you can call in instead. But you should just be able to hear this through your um, through your computer. All right, I'm going to go ahead and uh, continue. So welcome, everyone. Um, I'm Dr. Teresa Mae Benson. I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation, uh, and I'm delighted to be with you all this evening um, to discuss evidence-based practice as it applies to uh, the use of sensory integration to diverse populations. So. To begin our talk this evening, let me uh, go over a little bit about um, what I'm going to cover in tonight's talk, and uh, I'll give you some of the uh, current research that's utilized in evidence-based practice in this particular area. So, um, what I, hmm, that's very odd. Okay, so, um, if you're having trouble uh, hearing on your computer, um, try calling in at the dial-in number, okay? Um, I'm not sure what to say without holding us up tonight. Everything, I'm all unmuted. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and continue. Um, if you have trouble 
uh, hearing us, we may have to get you um, a recording uh, later on. All right. Um, so tonight, what we're going to go over, we're going to talk about uh, how we use sensory integration uh, or, and how sensory integration manifests with children with a variety of different kinds of diagnoses and populations. So uh, as many of you may be aware, uh, sensory integration was developed originally um, for use with children with learning disabilities and particularly those with uh, mild learning issues. Uh, since that time, it's been applied to individuals with uh, a wide range of other kinds of diagnoses uh, and other kinds of populations. And so uh, tonight we're going to take a look at some of those uh, different populations. First of all, we'll look at uh, what kinds of sensory integration and sensory processing and motor problems have been identified in some of these populations. And then we'll take a look at um, what is some of the available information about uh, SI intervention or sensory-based interventions. And uh, then we'll discuss uh, some of the applications and implications of this uh, to cl uh, your clinical practice. So first of all, uh, what diagnoses and populations are we talking about? There are a lot of them. Um, we have talked in other parts of this series about the sensory integration issues uh, with children and adults uh, with uh, mental health issues of a wide range of uh, difficulties. Those uh, we're not going to go over again tonight um, because we've covered them previously. But some of the most popular uh, populations that we um, see being uh, addressed with uh, SI uh, interventions are obviously autism spectrum disorder. And we have talked a little bit about um, ASD with uh, that population a little bit in the, uh, in the past, but I'm also going to um, cover that a little bit more tonight. Uh, there are also uh, post-institutionalized children and children who have experienced trauma. Uh, there's children with cerebral palsy. And then there are what I would consider to be uh, those uh, autism-related um, diagnoses, uh, Fragile X syndrome, Rett syndrome, uh, Williams syndrome. Um, all of, there's a variety of different uh, disabilities uh, that are more genetic in nature uh, that often manifest as autism uh, that also have sensory issues. In addition to that, um, children with Down syndrome have often been uh, uh, treated with SI-related issues. And then we have um, children who are hearing impaired, uh, particularly those with cochlear implants, have been a um, pretty uh, popular population for use of SI-based um, interventions. And then sort of uh, the literature often talks about developmental delays. And this can be kind of a hodgepodge of uh, children with uh, cognitive uh, delays and cognitive uh, disabilities uh, that may not uh, be particularly identified with a uh, specific problem. 
So we're going to look at a few of these. In addition to this, there's a couple of other uh, studies that have been done on a, a few odd uh, uh, populations, such as Tourette's, um, diabetes, and uh, multiple sclerosis. And so I wanted to just give you a little bit of information on um, those areas. Uh, another population that I want to start with, though, is dyslexia. And um, talk just a little bit about the evidence for sensory processing issues in uh, some of these populations. So we're going to start with dyslexia. Um, dyslexic children uh, have been kind of an interesting group. Um, they sometimes fall under your standard learning disabled population. Um, other times people say they're quite different from uh, children with uh, other language-based learning disabilities. Um, and uh, there's a whole body of literature specifically on dyslexia. And uh, I know that uh, some therapists feel like when they're treating these kids, these kids seem like they're a bit different than some of the other learning disabled children that they, uh, they work with. And um, I know we do have some people from uh, other countries, and I just want to clarify that uh, when I'm talking about learning disabilities, we're talking about um, mild language-based uh, issues. We are not talking about cognitive delays. Uh, I know in some countries, learning disabilities means cognitive disability, and that's not uh, how that term is used in the US. So to start with, um, there have been a number of different studies looking at the uh, sensory motor integration uh, and sensory processing difficulties uh, in children with dyslexia. And uh, some authors by the name of Viana, Razak, Freitas, and Barella uh, have completed uh, a couple of different um, studies on these children with dyslexia. And what they looked at um, primarily was postural control and sensory processing um, in children with uh, dyslexia. And in one study, they looked at body sway uh, using um, an unstable surface with visual and somatosensory information being manipulated. And basically what they found was that, first of all, children with dyslexia had more body sway. They had poorer postural control than non-dyslexic children in all sensory conditions. And particularly when they had conflicting visual and tactile information, the children's body sway was what's called less coherent, okay? It had a lot more variability, a lot more force. Um, it was less regular, all right? And so that incongruence in the uh, visual and tactile inputs uh, decreased their postural control even further. And so what they... Um, concluded from this study was that children with dyslexia have problems with multisensory integration because they are not able to integrate sensory cues from multiple sources. And so um, although this study was not looking specifically at sensory integration per se, I felt like it was a really uh, important study for us to be aware of uh, in terms of 
beginning to understand the sensory skills uh, in this population. Now, they also um, looked at the functioning of the postural control system in children with dyslexia and how that impacted the children's ability to perform motor actions. And they, in this particular study, they found that when they took away vision, the children with dyslexia took longer to produce motor responses. So they really seemed to need that visual input to organize their motor responses. And they felt that these children were more dependent on um, the quality of their sensory cues so that when um, they, they really needed to have high quality input in order to be able to function. Uh, they couldn't really tolerate uh, inputs that were not um, well-defined, so to speak. Now, um, another study looked at coordinating uh, auditory and visual information. And in this particular study, they found that these children had uh, decreased auditory visual integration mechanisms. And they felt that, uh, that some of that uh, multisensory integration difficulty probably contributed to the reading difficulties. Now, another study um, was interesting because they looked at the auditory and visual sensory processing at a very basic level as well as at an executive functioning level. And what they um, concluded were that the children's reading problems were due to deficits in this sensory processing and were not due to executive functioning um, problems. So it was not necessarily a reading issue per se, but it was really a visual perceptual and an auditory uh, visual auditory perceptual deficit. And I felt like that really spoke to our ability to help treat this problem, that um, as we can work on visual perceptual skills, that's probably something um, that may be helpful. And clearly, uh, they've not looked at vestibular deficits in children with dyslexia. It was kind of an interesting thing for me. Um, but uh, I would guess that that is likely to be challenged. If they have visual difficulties, um, there's likely to be vestibular problems. And so I think that's another area that needs to be looked at in this population. Now, um, the next population then are children with ASD. And I think this is something a lot of people are pretty familiar with, but I kind of wanted to review uh, a few of the studies in, in this population, and partly because much of the research uh, on children with autism, they use children with Down syndrome or a sort of generic developmental disability group uh, as a uh, alternate control group, uh, as well as typical peers. Because one of the things they're always trying to look at with autism is, is autism simply a developmental disability, or is it a um, difficulty with autism itself, okay? So if autism is just a developmental disability, then children with autism should perform similarly to children with other kinds of developmental delays. If autism is a different thing, 
then there may be some similarities in some areas, but there should be other areas which are quite different. So uh, one of the earliest studies looking at sensory processing in children with autism was done by um, Tom Check and uh, Winnie Dunn. And they looked at children from three to six years of age. And they found that 95% of their children with ASD had some degree of sensory processing dysfunction. And the biggest differences were in um, under-responsive seek sensation on the sensory profile, uh, auditory filtering, and tactile sensitivities. Uh, so that uh, was one of the earlier studies. And I think that these difficulties in auditory filtering, uh, tactile uh, defensiveness, um, have been pretty um, commonly found. Now, um, a more recent study by McCormick, Hepburn, Young, and Sally Rogers looked at uh, sensory symptoms in children with ASD, that uh, ubiquitous uh, developmental disorder group, and typical children. And in their um, study, they looked at children two to eight years of age. And what they wanted to know was not only uh, what kinds of sensory symptoms did they see, but what was the relationship between sensory symptoms and adaptive functioning in these young children. And what was interesting here is they did this longitudinally, okay? They followed children uh, at three different time points between these ages of two to eight years of age. And what they found was that children with autism had more sensory symptoms than the typical group at age two. So that's not surprising. Um, they had a lot of different kinds of sensory processing difficulties. Now, um, they had more sensory difficulties than the developmental delay group, however, only in areas of smell, taste, and auditory. So that auditory kind of keeps uh, cropping up. Now, what was quite interesting, though, was that the typical group decreased in sensory symptoms as the children aged. So in typical functioning, we get better at regulating our system and managing our sensory processing. And so as we get older, we have fewer sensory systems, especially in that area of modulation. However, both the developmental uh, delay group and the autism spectrum disorder group, their level of difficulties uh, remained stable over time, meaning that they had difficulties when they were two, and that same level of difficulty persisted until age eight. Now, the thing that's a little challenging for me, which they did not report on, is did these kids get sensory integration intervention? I would hope not, um, if there's no change. Um, but that would be something to uh, take a look at. Now, uh, another study looked at uh, sensory clusters uh, in children with uh, autism uh, spectrum uh, in toddlers. And this was done by uh, Ayelet Ben-Sasson, uh, Sharon Cermak, Gail Orsmond, um, and a couple of other people, including Alice Carter. And in this particular study, um, Alice Carter had uh, collected a large population sample in Connecticut um, 
of infants and toddlers over a number of years. And so they um, took a sample of uh, that uh, population-wide data and pulled out 170 toddlers with ASD. And what they found on this study is they then did a cluster analysis between uh, the children's performance on the infant-toddler sensory profile and the infant-toddler social-emotional assessment, which is a tool that was developed by Carter and Briggs-Gowan. And what they found were three different clusters. First of all, they had a group where there was a low frequency of sensory symptoms. Okay, so these were children who had autism but did not have uh, very many sensory uh, problems. Then they had a second group that had a high frequency of sensory symptoms. So they had <clears throat> a lot of uh, sensory processing problems. And the third was a mixed group where the children had a high frequency of under and over responsivity, okay, which is kind of an interesting thing to have both at the same time, and low frequency of sensory seeking. So this was uh, sort of a mixed bag. What was quite interesting here was that in the groups that had a lot of sensory processing problems, um, either all, you know, just a high frequency or in the mixed group, those two groups had higher negative emotionality, depression, and anxiety. So it kind of showed this relationship between sensory processing and some of these social-emotional uh, difficulties, okay? Now, another study looked at sensory processing in autism and fragile X. And this particular study was an interesting one. It was done by uh, Sinclair, Orangi, Razik, Siegel, and Schmid. And they looked not only at uh, individuals with ASD and Fragile X, um, but they also began to um, compare this to uh, animal models of um, autism and Fragile X. And what you might not be aware of is, is that they are able to replicate uh, many of these autism spectrum disorders um, actually in rats. Uh, and they do different things to them to, to make this happen. And there's a particular rat that um, has a, a certain kind of a problem that matches the ASD. So uh, there's uh, been a fair amount of literature looking at rat studies. But in this um, particular study, what they were looking at was the fact that both children with ASD and Fragile X have um, altered sensitivities. We know that they are more sensitive to sensory inputs. And what they were proposing here was that these, uh, this may be due to problems in uh, what's called signal integration or gating in the um, cortex of the brain. And this is something that can be picked up by um, EEG uh, kinds of uh, tests. And so uh, they were feeling like this was something that was uh, problematic. Now, other studies uh, followed up on that, and um, I'll talk about those in just a, a few moments here. 
So Fragile X then, that kind of brings us to uh, that population. Uh, there are several studies looking at sensory processing problems in Fragile X. And uh, one study by Baranek, uh, Chin, Hess, and others uh, looked at sensory processing and how it related to occupational performance in children with Fragile X. And these were school-aged boys. And what they found, and this was kind of an interesting uh, finding, was that when, um, children who demonstrated avoidance of sensory experiences, so that where they could um, have uh, internal control of the situation, that, believe it or not, though that type of sensory processing, avoidance of sensory experiences, was associated with low levels of school participation, self-care, and play. Now, on the other hand, children who were tactile defensive, who were aversive to touch, okay, those children had uh, an association with greater self-care independence. Now, that is really weird. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> you know, why that happened, and they actually said that that was kind of contrary to what they had anticipated. Um, but they felt that perhaps because the, um, there, there may be different uh, self-regulatory or coping mechanisms that accounted uh, for these differences. Now, um, another study by Grace Baranak and colleagues looked at developmental trajectories um, of sensory processing. And what they looked at here were children between the ages of 9 and 54 months of age. And they um, had them assessed uh, multiple times during that time frame. So between 9 months and 54 months, about 5 years. Um, what they found here was that the proportion of children with fragile X and these were all boys, um, who displayed sensory processing problems, uh, they, that, that the number of children with problems got larger over time, okay? So that these children seemed to show more sensory processing problems as they got older. So there may not, for instance, there may have only been, I'm just making up numbers, but just as an example, at nine months, perhaps there were only 10% uh, of the group had sensory processing problems. But by 54 months, they may have had 25% uh, or 50%. Okay, so the proportion of children displaying uh, sensory processing problems uh, increased over time. Now, another thing which was quite interesting to me was that... Um, Age and developmental level, or IQ, predicted levels of hyporesponsivity. So the child's age and their IQ predicted under-responsiveness. Now, to some degree, this makes sense, and I think it's, it's similar to what I've seen, is, is that we tend to see, I feel like we tend to see hypo-responsivity, or under-responsiveness, 
when there are cognitive delays, all right, when there is the uh, cognitive difficulties. There sort of tends to be kind of a dampening uh, that happens in the cortex, um, and that may uh, result in an overall under-responsiveness. Now, on the other hand, over-responsiveness or hyper-responsivity seemed to increase with age. So children got more defensive the older they got. Okay. Now, this was kind of an interesting thing um, because they felt that early identification of these problems um, may help attenuate these long-term difficulties. So early identification was important. Now, um, another study that was done by uh, Rotz, Schaefer, and Razik uh, looked at auditory processing in Fragile X. And essentially, they found uh, that these children had auditory hypersensitivity uh, and that this was a pretty reliable biomarker, uh, particularly in mice with the Fragile X um, gene-type thing that they've um, developed uh, in these mice. So that, that hypersensitivity, again, seems to be um, hypersensitivity to auditory input seems to be um, common. Now, another thing that we see here, uh, another study by Etheridge, White, and all, they also looked at that auditory hypersensitivity and what they found was that uh, that hypersensitivity seemed to be due to decreased habituation to the stimuli. So they, it's not like they just were hyperacute. It was that they were hyperacute because they did not habituate to the problem. All right. Now, um, another study um, by Franklin Wang et al. Um, looked at uh, again, some of this sensory gating, all right, using EEG kinds of things. Uh, actually, I guess they used FMR, yeah, EEGs. And one of the things they looked at is what's called prepulse inhibition. And what this prepulse inhibition does is it looks at a kind of sensory gating, all right. It looks at how quickly your nervous system is able to uh, respond to a stimuli and to inhibit that input. Uh, appropriately. And what they found was that the magnitude of the prepulse uh, inhibition problem predicted the severity of their IQ, their attention levels, their adaptive behaviors, and what type of autistic phenotype they were going to have. So it's, it's quite an interesting um, mix of studies. Now, uh, the next population we want to look at here is Williams syndrome. And um, some of you may or may not be familiar with Williams syndrome. It's a um, genetic uh, disorder. Uh, and in this study, they looked at children 6 to 15. And they found that these children were predominantly characterized by hypersensitivities uh, to sensory input, particularly in the areas of vestibular functioning, auditory, gustatory, and proprioceptive processing, all right, and that these children had um, a restricted range 
uh, sorry, they had a range of restricted and repetitive behaviors that were associated with their sensory systems uh, symptoms. So uh, they felt that these uh, atypical uh, behaviors were connected to the children's sensory processing. All right. Now, um, the next population we want to look at is cerebral palsy. And um, I find this population with cerebral palsy really fascinating uh, to look at. Uh, I have long felt that uh, these kiddos had sensory processing and praxis issues. Uh, it just uh, made sense to me that they're not getting normal sensory processing. How can they possibly have um, typical praxis uh, type skills, um, but it's not an area that has really been looked at in this population. Uh, I think there's been a little bit of um, use of SI with these kids, and I know um, I've used SI techniques with these children for years and felt like it was really helpful for many of them, but um, it's not an area that's been uh, studied. And fortunately, there are now several different studies examining this. So in one um, study by Pavio and Rocha, they actually used the sensory profile uh, to look at children with cerebral palsy. And what they found, uh, obviously, were differences in sensory processing between uh, typical children and children with cerebral palsy on 16 out of the 23 sensory profile categories. All right, And basically... Uh, concluded that there were, in fact, sensory processing difficulties with this particular population. Um, the next thing that uh, study that was done looked at tactile sensory functioning. And this was an exciting study for me because they actually looked at tactile discrimination. And it's very uncommon to find um, researchers looking at sensory discrimination skills. Because they always want to use the sensory profile, which primarily looks at modulation-related issues, um, discrim problems aren't typically examined. But in this case, uh, Sanger and uh, Cook uh, looked at children with cerebral palsy. And what was interesting here is they looked at children with upper extremity uh, dystonia, so problems with the upper extremity control. And then they had a second group of children with cerebral palsy with diplegia who did not have upper extremity involvement, and then they had a typical group. And what they found were that both of the groups with cerebral palsy had problems with tactile discrimination, okay, compared to the controls. In addition to that, um, the problems that they found in these children were similar to what they had found in another study in adults who had a type of focal dystonia. And so uh, that was kind of exciting for me, is, is that they really demonstrated these tactile discrimination difficulties. Now, another study by Kurz, Heinrichs, Graham, Arpin, Decker, and Wilson uh, looked at um, uh, how the somatosensory uh, part of the brain um, handled sensory inputs and how that related to the motor performance of children with cerebral palsy. Now, this was an exciting study because 
we um, talk about sensory processing dif um, difficulties in terms of somatosensory problems <clears throat> as being uh, a foundation for praxis issues, okay, and for motor performance. And so it would make sense that that's something that we might want to look at in children with cerebral palsy. And <clears throat> what they found, pardon me, is that, um, again, children with cerebral palsy had decreased tactile discrimination, okay? And what was interesting is when they looked at um, the brain waves of the children, their brain waves were what's called dis, uh, desynchronized. So they kind of went all wacky, all right, when they, the tactile input was applied. And particularly then, when they asked the children to do a motor action, as a result, they made more mistakes with the motor action. So essentially what was happening here is they felt that the children's motor performance problems were related to this dyssynchrony problem in the somatosensory cortex, which is really cool because that's essentially what we've been hypothesizing is going on in children with praxis issues. Now, mind you, we're dealing with uh, brains here that are potentially... Uh, problematic, you know, because of um, the cerebral palsy, but it's still a really exciting uh, connection to make. Now, another study kind of followed up on this um, by Cooper, Magnimer, Rosenblatt, and Birnbaum, and they looked at um, hemiplegic children with cerebral palsy uh, between 4 and 19 years of age, and they found that 88.8% um, .8 of their population had bilateral sensory deficits. So sensory processing problems were present in close to 89% of the ch children. And particularly, they had problems with stereognosis and proprioception, okay? And they found that, again, the somatosensory functioning was closely related to the children's motor functioning. So that was um, a, a very important um, study as well. Now, and not one other study on, um, well, there's two other studies on cerebral palsy that then looked at sensory processing and motor performance, and particularly motor planning. And so one of these was Kurz, Becker, Heinrichs, Graham, and Wilson. And they looked at um, children between 10 and 18 years of age. And they had them do a very simple motor planning task. And basically from uh, the, they did this, um, uh, one of their little muscle test kind of things. Um, and uh, whole head uh, EMG recordings. And what they found was that these children had greater difficulty with the motor planning activity. So that their EEG uh, responses, okay, their EEG responses were desynchronized, again, during motor planning. 
And so they felt that this showed that the problem here was not just a motor execution problem, but it was also a motor planning problem. And this um, then was followed up um, with uh, some other studies as well. Now, um, the last study I want to go over on um, cerebral palsy is one that looked at sensory processing and gross and fine motor skills. And this was done by uh, Park. And in this study, they gave the children the short sensory profile, uh, the gross motor function classification system, and the manual ability classification system, and found a significant correlation between the children's sensory processing and their gross motor and fine motor tests, okay? In addition to that, they found that um, tactile sensitivity, movement sensitivity, auditory filtering, and low energy weak were correlated with gross and fine motor skills. So one last study, again, supporting this relationship between um, sensory processing and gross motor skills, okay? Now, um, we've got just a couple other um, populations here. Tourette's syndrome, uh, one study by Jewers, Staley, and Shady found significant differences in sensory processing on the short sensory profile uh, between children with uh, Tourette's and typical children. And uh, not surprisingly found that when these children with Tourette's also had diagnoses um, uh, such as attention deficit disorder, they had more problems in sensory processing, particularly in the areas of auditory processing. Now, another um, population that uh, I think is of particular interest to us are um, children who are preterm or low for gestational age. Um, most, many preterm, or sorry, many low gestational age children are also preterm, so it can kind of get mixed. But essentially, um, a study by uh, Rekkonen, Lano, et al. Uh, looked at sensory processing in these um, children. And what they found was that uh, half of the low gestational uh, age children had definite uh, or probable problems on sensory prof uh, profiles, uh, with the lowest, uh, the most common problem being low registration. Now, what was interesting here is they found that in this group, sensation seeking was associated with abnormal gray and white matter uh, in the brain on MRIs, all right? And that there was a particular pattern of oral sensory processing problems that was related to um, a particular uh, kind of a surgical procedure that was done. So that was kind of interesting. Um, they also found that um, children, uh, I missed the CP one. I apologize. Oh, no, this is because they're preterm. Okay, so we have another study with um, uh, preterm children, okay? And what they found was that, not surprisingly, um, a high percentage of children who are born um, preterm, so less than 37 weeks, have um, higher incidences of cerebral palsy. But uh, almost half of the children 
had problems uh, with mild to moderate motor impairments that were consistent with uh, developmental coordination disorder, and that all these forms of motor impairment were associated with balance problems, manual dexterity problems, ball skills difficulties, quality of life issues, academic achievement, and participation in extracurricular activities. So a lot of functional outcomes. And another study by uh, Cabral, uh, De Silva, uh, Tudela, uh, and Martinez found that uh, there was an association between sensory processing and motor development uh, in children who were low birth weight. All right, and what they found was that on the tests that they used, which was the um, test of sensory functions in infants and the Alberta Infant Motor Scale, the AIMS, those two tests did not correlate with each other. However, in the children who had poor sensory processing, they all had low motor performance. So it seems like when things are more typically functioning, there's not a relationship, but that children with sensory processing problems also had motor performance problems. And so they felt that uh, if you see sensory processing problems in these um, uh, children with uh, preterm that, and low birth weight, that there's, uh, they are at uh, risk for motor performance issues. Now, the next population is Down syndrome. And um, Down syndrome, uh, it's been interesting. They haven't really looked a lot at sensory processing in this population. The studies I found were by Horvat, Croce, uh, uh, and others. And they looked at spatial temporal movement problems, uh, particularly gait. And this particular study was interesting because they had the kids walk, and then they had them walk carrying something. And they attributed this to a problem in executive functioning, which they felt like the added cognitive demand of having to carry something uh, decreased their gait, um, and rather than this potentially being a postural issue or a motor planning issue. So that was something that was kind of interesting. Um, another study by Biek, Zima, uh, et al., looked at postural control and performance in children with uh, Down syndrome and found that the uh, type of postural adjustments that these kids made to somatosensory challenges were quite different uh, than uh, typical uh, kids. So not only did they have poorer postural control, but they um, had difficulty, uh, the way that they dealt with their postural control was quite different. Um, then we have general developmental disabilities, um, and these were not um, defined. Uh, Wallace and Stevens found problems with spatial and temporal uh, relationships uh, in terms of sensory uh, processing and perception. Then um, looking ahead, uh, further at uh, post-institutionalized children, we found that uh, Cermak and Dunhauer found that in Romanian orphans from three to six years of age, these children had significantly greater sensory problems than uh, peers. 
in the areas of touch, avoiding movement, seeking movement, vision, and auditory. And Lynn uh, and Cermak uh, then also later found difficulties with praxis. Okay. Um, and, oh, I forgot to tell you that in the study with Cermak and Dunhauer on sensory processing, the sensory processing difficulties were related to problems with activity level, feeding, organization, and social-emotional skills. Now, kind of related to that, um, a study by Struthers looked at children in foster care and um, identified that children in foster care tend to have more sensory processing difficulties and that these problems um, were also related to areas in motor planning, vestibular processing, and sensory regulation. Okay. Now, um, the last population I want to go through before we talk a little bit about treatment are children with um, cochlear implants. Uh, most of the literature I found on the hearing-impaired population was on children with cochlear implants. And a recent study by Koster, Melo, Coleman et al. Uh, found that children with cochlear implants on the sept demonstrated difficulties with vestibular and proprioceptive bilateral integration and sequencing difficulties. So that's kind of not a big surprise given the difficulties with that auditory apparatus. Now, another study uh, by Insco and Bones found that these children had multiple um, diagnoses. They tended to also have problems with visual um, processing as well as um, frequently having autism, which was an interesting thing. And this visual sequential, um, visual processing difficulties seem to be associated with uh, children with cochlear implants. This came up in a couple of studies. Um, Barad, Baradwa and uh, Mita found problems in visual sequential memory and visual motor sequencing in children with cochlear implants. And Suarez, Angeli, and others found problems with uh, balance. And this study was kind of interesting because they took children with cochlear implants who had um, under-responsive uh, vestibular systems as well as then a group with normal vestibular um, responses. And they found that for children who had the high, uh, low PRN, okay, um, that when they took away visual information, those children had more problems with their balance. So the, when there's low PRN in children who um, have cochlear implants, that those children had more problems when you took away visual input, which was kind of interesting. All right. And it they concluded that those children primarily used visual and also somatosensory inputs to help with their postural uh, control. 
So the last um, couple of little populations, which are kind of just interesting ones to be aware of, uh, one study by um, Engel Yeager looked at diabetes uh, mellitus in adults and found decreased tactile discrimination skills. Okay, um, so that was one that I thought was uh, kind of important to be aware of because some of our children uh, may have that additional medical issue. So, phew, um, that brings us then to sensory-based interventions and what do we, we know about this? And I have to say, um, there was not a lot of literature. Uh, I actually could not, I only found <clears throat> two studies which looked at anything remotely like sensory uh, modulation or sensory integration intervention. There were no studies on AIRS SI. All right. There is one meta-analysis by Long and Carter and Stevenson that looks at um, sensory integration therapy for individuals with developmental and learning disabilities. But the reality of that particular meta-analysis is that most of the population there are learning disabled children. There are very few children with diverse populations. Um, and they kind of essentially concluded that uh, sensory integration therapy did better than no treatment with small effects, but um, there was no difference with alternate treatments. Um, <clears throat> there was one recent study by Blanc and Chang, Gutierrez, and Gunter uh, on developmental disabilities. And again, this was sort of your uh, generic developmental disability group where they did what was called a sensory enriched early intervention group program and for toddlers from 18 to 36 months. And they found that 70% of children who had atypical sensory processing, all right, um, were present at enrollment and that after the intervention, uh, all of those children demonstrated significant improvement in all areas of development except um, fine motor skills, all right? So uh, they found that this sensory enriched early intervention program was helpful for this group. Um, another uh, couple of studies, there are two studies on Rett syndrome, um, primarily by LOTAN. And uh, these two studies looked at the use of snoozolin rooms uh, to help uh, calm uh, the agitation and discomfort, help with self-organization with children with Rett syndrome and found positive results. And I will say I worked with some colleagues who were conducting a study on Rett's and they did use a sensory integration uh, intervention with Fidelity and they found some very nice positive results. They've just not been able to get that study um, published at this point in time. Now, um, the, last, uh, the next study then is there's one study on multiple sclerosis, of all things, where they used a um, experimental training program for balance. Um, which they felt improved balance. Now, again, this was not an SI-based program, but was based on looking at least at balance skills. Um, 
Another study looked at NDT on gross motor functioning and cerebral palsy. And in that study, they found improvements in motor skills like rolling, sitting, crawling, and kneeling. Uh, and then um, that study was done by uh, Shan Saudini. And then uh, the last study was done by Booman and Cayahan. And they looked at what they called a sensory perceptual motor training, where the, which they did in an individual and a group setting. And they found that both their group and individual treatments um, in, uh, had uh, significant effects on uh, motor skills uh, in all of the children, and that those were greater than those of controls. So that is about the closest that we had to an SI intervention for children with uh, cerebral palsy. So the literature is quite slim uh, in our intervention in these diverse populations. Uh, to kind of summarize what we've got here, um, you know, there's some evidence that sensory integration uh, interventions are better than no treatment. Um, effects are kind of small uh, to moderate, but there are a lot of methodological problems with the studies that have been done. Um, largely uh, very heterogeneous populations, um, small sample sizes, uh, interventions that were not well-defined, and only a couple of studies on these various populations. Uh, so we clearly need a lot more research uh, for uh, these diverse populations in order to determine what specific kinds of intervention strategies or interventions that are sensory-based are going to be helpful for them. Uh, another thing that was quite interesting to me is uh, when you look at the outcome measures that have been used, these have really been um, person-centered outcome measures, measures about um, gross motor function, body functions, um, very uh, sort of uh, lower level proximal kinds of outcomes. And I think we really uh, need to look more at outcomes uh, that are more functionally oriented um, as well. So the last thing then is how does this um, help us apply to our clinical practice? Well, first of all, um, these ASD-related diagnoses like Fragile X, Williams, and Rett's, uh, probably not Rett syndrome since that's a degenerative disorder, but definitely Fragile X and, and Williams syndrome may be more amenable to treatment, um, that SI interventions may be really helpful for those disorders to reduce the uh, increase in sensory processing problems that seem to happen in these populations, because both of them uh, basically indicated difficulties uh, getting worse as kids got older. Uh, another really growing population is this trauma population, the children who are uh, adopted, who are in foster care, uh, and I'm also going to put in this population your preterm, uh, low birth weight children who probably have had all kinds of medical issues. You know, this is really a growing population that we need to be thinking about. Um, there is uh, a little bit of literature on this uh, population, um, but um, what is out there is positive and is uh, 
clinicians are seeing great uh, changes uh, already. Uh, I think that the cerebral palsy population is showing increased evidence for sensory and praxis problems that I think we really need to address and to be looking at. Uh, there's very little on SI treatment with these populations. I just think people don't think about it. And I, I think it's probably the biggest population I think that needs to be looking at it. I think it's the un, unknown population uh, for sensory uh, processing and praxis difficulties. Uh, and then lastly is these population with dyslexia. And there's clearly difficulties with uh, sensory processing, visual perceptual difficulties, visual spatial problems, as well as sensory motor problems um, in that population. And given that they um, often uh, follow along with our uh, children with our basic learning issues, uh, they should be a prime uh, population for receiving SI services. So that said, um, our time is up now, um, and I'd like to thank you all for joining us. Um, I will take questions here in just a moment. All right. Um, please watch our website and our mailing list for more details. And thank you to everyone for joining us uh, for our live talk. I apologize for those of you who had some uh, uh, connection difficulties. Not quite sure what that was all about tonight. Um, but please um, do grab your copy of the recording and watch our website for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. So thank you all. Um, I will take questions now if um, anyone has questions. You can go ahead and type those into your um, chat box there. And we've got somebody from Michigan. I will unmute you if you have anything that you would like. And Nancy, I'll unmute you too. So anybody who's on the phone, if you have questions, I'm happy to uh, take those. Anybody there? Yes, um, this is Nancy. I, I, I just um, I, I don't have questions. I'm okay. very interested in the way you characterize trauma, but we can talk about that. Okay, great. I'll mute you then. Get background noise. <laughs> okay. Anybody else have questions tonight? No. All right. Well, everybody, have a great night then, <laughs> and uh, we'll uh, see you at our next live talk.